This is the Otaku Nate Show, episode 43, Midori Days. Put your hand inside the puppet head. What is up, anime fans? Otaku Nate here with another installment of the Otaku Nate Show, the anime podcast where we talk about anime that we want to talk about. Joining me this week is Dan the Man. Greetings, it's nice to be back. And new to the show for this week. Hello, I'm Kat. I used to be a mildly popular cosplayer, and now I'm just a guy. <laughs> but are you Kenuff? I'm Kenuff. Enough for Midori days, at least. I, I just saw the, the energy Bar- is strong in this one. Yeah, I saw the Barbie movie this weekend, and uh, spoilers, I kind of had a blast with it. Oh, it's so good. I, I just, I love the renewal of practical sets and camp. That's what's sorely missing from movies these days, but that's neither here nor there. This week... As Kat just said, we are going to be talking about Midori Days, released in 2004 by Studio Piero, based on a manga by Kazuro Inoue. The series was directed by Tsuneo Kobayashi, and boy, this guy has quite the resume, both as a storyboarder and as a director. He directed the 1998 Glass Mask OVA. Uh, He directed one of the Super Gals series. And most notably, Victorian Romance Emma, Kurokami the Animation, and perhaps the greatest Isekai series of them all, and I say that unironically, The Twelve Kingdoms. Clap, 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 clap. As for the writers, well, there are four people who are credited as for writing the show. And and to quote Crow T. Robot from Mystery Science Theater 3000, you know when there's four people on a screenplay, there's going to be trouble. But is there really going to be trouble when you have four talented writers on board at once? Like Kazuhisa Sakaguchi, who wrote Haunted Junction, which we reviewed a while back, a pretty good little high school horror comedy. Mamiko Ikeda, who was head writer on episodes 1 through 103 of Sergeant Frog, Maid Sama, Chrome Shelled Regios, and Victorian Romance Emma. The odd one out is Shinya Kawabata, who doesn't really have any real writing credits. But the most significant one is a guy I actually met at Anime NYC many years ago, Takaya Sato, writer of Fate Stay Night 2006 and The Great Passage, and more significantly, the director of Strawberry Marshmallow, Selector Infected Wickross. And you might have heard of this next series that he directed, Steins Gate. It's honestly insane how much talent there is behind such a little oddball show with such an odd premise. Well, what is the premise, Kat? Well, I'm glad you asked. So Midori Days takes the whole, oh no, I'm a teenage boy with no love life, I'm cursed forever that my only girlfriend will be my right hand, 
phrase it literally. <laughs> One day, Seiji, high school delinquent, wakes up to find that his right hand has been transformed into a cute anime girl named Midori, who, unbeknownst to him, is a girl in his town who's had a crush on him for a few years. She doesn't know why she's here either, but she is strangely happy about this turn of events. And no, it's not a pervert show. There's a lot that goes into Midori Days that makes it such a great show, but where did you two first hear about Midori Days, and what were your initial impressions when you first watched it? Oh, okay. <laughs> I actually surprisingly heard about Midori Days on a little old defunct website now known as the Anime Academy. And there is a place that did a lot of anime reviews. Actually, I had discovered a lot of new anime, but actually they recommended Midori Days or AKA I like to call it still Midori no Hebe. Everyone's like said, the premise sounds so ridiculous, but when you watch the show, you realize how surprisingly charming the show is without getting too creepy. And it actually, I watched it on the good old days of buying it on a bootleg DVD uh, from my old comic store back in the day. And I bought it. I loved it. And I've watched it several times. I bought it legit. Uh, when Media Blaster had it, and it's still in my collection. It's still one of my favorite rom-coms of the early 2000s, and still love it to this day. And that's, again, how I heard about the show. And Yeah, I first remember hearing about it um, also on a defunct anime review site. When I was in middle school, I watched a lot of stuff from uh, the D2 Brigade site, and I forget which one of their reviewers it was, but they mentioned that Midori Days is one of those shows that you wouldn't just expect to go in a very different direction tonally than it does. And despite the fact that I was like 13 and probably shouldn't have been watching something with AG tags, I was like, okay, I'm in. And it was a really cute thing. And it's stuck with me well over a decade later. It's funny. You're talking about defunct websites. I don't know where I first heard of Midori days. I think it might've been in AMV hell which is where I discovered a lot of obscure anime that came out around the late 90s, early 2000s here in America. The likes of Battle Athletes Victory, Handmade May, and Iken. But I had heard some positive buzz around Midori Days, and since I'm looking to review some more romantic comedies on this show, I believe Dan was the one who put the thought in my head of reviewing Midori Days. And sandwiched between the craziness of Lupin the Third, and the more dramatic tones of what I'm going to be reviewing next episode, Midori Days is a nice little stopgap. And the positive buzz I heard around it turned out to be true. I have to say, this is one of the best rom-coms of that period of the early 2000s, which is kind of a bit of a rough period for anime, specifically 2000 to 2002. But around this Especially time, visually. Oh, uh, we'll talk about yeah, that. Yeah, visually, yeah. <laughs> but 2004 is considered to be a momentous year for anime by fandom, and Midori Days is a good example as to why 2004 was such a great year. But, unfortunately, we have to start at one of Midori Days' weaker points, if you want to say that. And I would say, visually, it's your standard early to mid-2000s fanfare. 
Yeah, in preparation for uh, this episode, I actually reread the whole manga, which is something I hadn't done before. And the manga has like fairly like pretty, but I would say on the better end standard of rom-com art of the period. And then I decided to go back and, you know, watch a little bit of the anime. And I just remember having in my head of, oh, no, the colors, my God, the colors, that transition from cells to the digital era took a bit <laughs> yeah it's there are parts i watched it was kind of it's the typical standard i will admit there are a couple parts and especially the first early episodes that have some smooth animation at points but it's very barely a minute of like with the fights with saiji and fighting other people but yeah in general it's it's really standard it, it doesn't stand out too much when there are action scenes in the show they are shockingly smooth but otherwise it suffers from the same problems that you will see in a lot of early digitally animated shows. Flat colors, rather dull and drab color palettes, sort of tasteless backgrounds, your typical fanfare of early fare. But I will say I like the character designs for the show. Very yes. faithful to the manga. Yeah, Each they one are. has something Indeed. about them that stand out. I agree. Yeah, my, my one last note that I kind of have on the visuals is that for such a, like, quirky, puppy, upbeat show, like, yes, the colors all are dull, but it also, to me, has the color palette with a lot of, like, greens and grays and browner tones of what I would associate with more of a drama series of the era, whereas I would expect it to be, like... I'm trying to think of the only things that are coming to my head are slightly later, like when in, you get into Baca test and everything <laughs> like that of the brighter, peppier colors to match that tone. So you end up with um, I, I have some issues with the tone of the series overall in terms of how it balances its very funny comedy bits with the more dramatic implications of things. But I think that the color work and design tends it towards um emphasizing a couple of dramatic bits better than highlighting its cuteness if that makes sense with what you said about its color palette i was gonna say it looks like a more vibrant kino's journey yeah <laughs> yeah one thing i can say though about the animation i was not expecting nipples yes it's shocking surprising you see that forgot all about that <laughs> Because usually yeah. on, I do a panel all about broadcast censorship for Japanese TV for anime. And more often than, and, and unless you're on satellite, you're not allowed to show the nipples. Like, you gotta have steam clouds or shadows or beams of light over them. I'm assuming that these were taken from the DVD releases because there's the full pink circle with the tip in it and everything on full display. And it ain't just for one episode. There are several episodes where you see the girls' nips in this show. Yeah, that's Nipples actually something I'd like to... Uh... You know, that's kind of show, but, go, but the serious in point. Yeah, it is interesting to see that, and especially in those kind of in that shows in the early days. I think there were like... Like said, satellite TV, and it's they show those, but it's like it's kind of surprising. Like you know, you don't see as much as they used to. You know, especially in, in today's standards, TVs. It's kind of interesting to just go back and remember a time when they would do that. Like wow, different times. I'd actually like to do a brief aside where we discuss the nipples in a bit more depth because I think that without the context of Midori days and talking about how like you get realistic nipples on display in this show and what a rarity that is. 
the, that portrays or implies Midori Days as being far more of a fan service based series than it is. And to me, that's one of the really surprising traits of the show is that, um, and again, my memory is a little bit rustier on the anime, but at least in the manga, pretty much every context in which we are shown nipples is strangely unsexual, I would say. Like, it's almost always yeah. in a circumstance where it's just, it's not sexy boobs, it's just boobs because logically this is a circumstance in which this person would be naked. It reminded me a little bit more <laughs> of the nudity in Gunbuster than in anything else, like more modern, agey, easy, that kind of thing. Well, but uh, even rare uh, in the entire manga are... was there a point where a nude woman was drawn in a way where you were supposed to find her sexy, it felt like. Which, again, is uh, very surprising to me for a male-targeted romantic comedy series. Like I said, it's kind of like you said, the first few episodes are kind of like you said, it's not drawn in a very sexy way or anything like that. It's just more of like kind of awkward situation that happened like you know accidental kind of they say but the more like those kind of things especially in the later episodes they do i mean, believe uh there's a bathhouse scene with midori and of course the sister i think that's the only other thing i can think of yeah it's telling to me about like the intent of the showrunners that the one context in which we actually see like female nudity being portrayed very sexualized is in the context when it's the main character's like adult sister and that's supposed to be kind of a fun thing for the viewers but anytime you see Midori it's like oh she is a magic little fairy creature that exists on the end of this guy's hand of course she doesn't suddenly have clothes yet or like other similar scenarios of yeah this is just it is what it is. There's an air it doesn't of, feel um, exploitative, basically. There's an air of innocence to the nudity in this show, specifically surrounding Midori. They're not doing it to be sexy. It's just more a case of, oh, well, it just kind of happened. This isn't a Kenakamatsu manga, is what we're saying. Yes. And I feel like a lot of that probably is, on some level, a trickle-down effect from the fact that Midori is... A miniature version of herself attached to Seiji's hand at the wrist. Like, the physical anatomy of their situation is something that is inherently desexualized just by the fact that nothing exists below her hips. And that kind of carries over in a more metaphorical way to the kind of desexualization of her as a character. Question, does the manga ever get, like, explaining the whole... Because I know the anime doesn't really... It just, like doesn't really go into detail of how she got to that point. Does the manga ever go into detail? It does not, and I actually really respect it for that. Uh, because yeah. I was expecting it to pull a Stephen King and go into this whole, like, strange cosmic detailed lore explanation for what led to this circumstance, but it never really does beyond just kind of what we get in the manga, which is Midori... Uh, was never courageous enough in order to tell Seiji she had a crush on him. And this whole thing is kind of implied to be an elaborate way to help Midori learn confidence and to help Seiji uh, learn how to interact with girl, basically. It's just, it's a happy coincidence that is given zero more information than on a cosmic level. People had wishes that could be solved by this happening. 
And I think the lack of explanation as to why Midori ends up the way she does, both at the beginning and at the end, is to the show's benefit. We don't need to know. Yes, we can just sure. assume how it happened. Agree. I think we're done talking about animation. I don't have much to say about the soundtrack. It's forgettable. I don't really remember much of the music. It's kind of like general, generic opening, generic ending. I just, eh, it's typical. It's not offensive. It's pretty quiet, mellow, and upbeat. The opening's upbeat. I think the ending was a little more slower, if I remember correctly. Yeah, the opening and ending songs are just kind of whatever. And that's kind of unfortunate, considering that the composer has actually done some pretty significant things. The composer for this was a guy named Yoshihisa Hirano, and among his resume include include Air Master, also from 2004, and a kick-ass fighting show, Strawberry Panic. I love Strawberry Panic. Nana 7 of 7, Eden Zero, Death Note, the mecha series Broken Blade, the Haruka Naru series, most recently he did Helk, and his biggest credits are he did the music for Oron High School Host Club and the 2011 Hunter Hunter series. Wow, I guess my man just phoned it in on this one, huh? Yeah, it kind of just phoned it in, unfortunately. The music and ending songs are forgettable. They're just kind of there. Like, I think that's sort of a recurring thing thing that I'm finding when reviewing a lot of rom-coms, you're not going to get too many that have like, oh wow, this is such an awesome soundtrack. I mean, on a few occasions you get something that's cool, but most anime rom-coms tend to play it safe on the soundtrack. I feel like they tend to be what gets the least budget category overall from the industry, so that checks out. Corners, pretty much. And most of that budget goes into the seiyuu. And for this time, we've actually got a pretty interesting cast. The titular Midori is played by somebody that I have talked about numerous times on this show, and that is Mai Nakahara. If you follow my show, you know that I love her so much. I love her as Anna and Godanner. I love her even more as Mai and Maihime and my Otome. You can also hear her as Juvia in Fairy Tale, Rena in Higarashi. Nagisa in Clanad, among many, many other roles that she has. Seijikun. <laughs> Sorry, you had to do it. Speaking of Speaking of Seiji, I am Go I'm not overly familiar with Japanese voice actors, but I have thought that Seiji's voice actor like brings so much to this show. He is just oh, fantastically lovable. Oh, on the his Japanese whole character is great. He's like, he's so over the top, and especially he gets exaggeration at times, especially those early episodes. He's just so over the top, and he does such a brilliant job. Well, it makes sense when you realize that his voice actor is Kishio Taniyama, most famous as the voice of Jean Kerstein in Attack on Titan, the legendary horse what? face that asks the eternal question, What is it, Aaron? You can also hear him as... Yuya Fungami in JoJo's Bizarre Adventure Diamond is Unbreakable, Chuya Nakahara in Bungo Stray Dogs, Kitan in Gurren Lagan, and most important to me, he's the voice of Dark Schneider in Bastard. 
Oh my god. Yay. I love Dark That's Shadow hilarious. so much. I absolutely love him. Ayase, the tomboy who's Seiji's secret admirer, is played by Reiko Takagi. He's Dan's favorite character, Koala Sue, in Love Hina. <laughs> no. You can also hear her as Maki in Minami K, Tadase Hotori in Shugo Chara, Ryo in Ultramaniac, and Cassandra in Soul Calibur. Rin, Seiji's older sister, is played by Atsuko Yuya. Her only other noteworthy roles I could find of note is that she's the Japanese voice of Jill Valentine in the Resident Evil series, and Officer Sato in Detective Conan. Shui That's a pity there's not more, I really like her performance. Shuichi, the figure otaku, is played by Yuji Ueda. I last heard him as Chris Hawken in Arjuna. Oh. That's your favorite show. <laughs> but that aside, he also plays another one of your favorite characters. He's Keitaro in Love Hina. So you have him to thank for ruining the harem genre for over a decade. Can I also point out that in addition to uh, ruining harem genre, Ken Akamatsu is now ruining Japanese politics as a real elected official. Hey, I'm glad that Ken Akamatsu's a politician now. Gives him less time to draw shitty manga. Oh, Lord. I just go. Anyway, you can also hear him as Brock in Pokemon, Johannes Krauser II in Detroit Metal City, Senosuke in the original Rurouni Kenshin, Billy Katagiri in Gundam 00, Shinobu Morita in Honey and Clover, Kakyo Kazuki in X, and currently he is the voice of Blanca in Street Fighter. Last but most certainly not least, and I had no idea just how notorious she was until I actually looked at her behind the voice actors page, Shiori, the little girl who claims to be Seiji's little sister, is voiced by Yukari Tamura. Prior to this, she what? was known as the voice of Ranfa in Galaxy Angel, Koryu and Anryu and their gestalt form Tenryujin in Gaogaigar Final, and Tenten in Naruto. And then 2004 happened, because she was not only in this, but she was also in two of the three big magical girl shows that year, as she was Midori in Maihime, and Nanoha in Magical Girl Lyrical Nanoha. 2004, a good year for this girl in particular. She's since gone yeah. on to voice characters like Suzuha in Steins Gate, Rika in Higarashi, Priscilla in ReZero, Jibril in No Game No Life, and my favorite character in Kill la Kill, Harime Nui. I think that that's an arguably correct opinion. In fact, if you want to know how notorious she is, we featured her several times on this show. Because she was Morino in Please Teacher, Huka Tanigawa, uh, that's the bridge bunny with dark skin, in Die Guard. She was one half of the British dragliner team, Ellis, in Godanner. And Dan, this one's for you. She's Yamada in Yamada's First Time. Oh, wow. 
we have a stacked cast for the Japanese side, and the Japanese track is really good. Unfortunately, though, I can't say the same of the dub if either of you watched it. Oh god, I looked at oh, a clip only of it a few it. We... before we started. Oh god, that dub. I'm sorry. I want to put it out of my mind. That that was um yeah, that dub is does do we need to go into it really? Oh god. Like out of an entirely lackluster cast, can we name a worse voice because in the English it's Koda. I'm so sorry to that voice actor, but my god. It's weird because this is an NYAV post dub and they usually do great work. It's directed by Sean Schlemmel, but the cast just is not there for this one. That dub is like, it could have been a potential to be an okay dub, but everyone just sounds awkward. Like, it just doesn't add, line up with the characters. Yeah, I, it's I just, really... It's atrocious. I really do wonder if the lacklusterness, that's a generous word, um of this dub is based in part on the premise of the show because especially in 2004 where you have like a smaller anime dubbing industry and everything like what kinds of auditions or what kinds of even performances do you think are going to be expected out of you when you sign up for a guy whose girlfriend is his right hand anime like it makes me wonder if people went into it with a sort of defeatist attitude about the premise because again, like, the tech behind this one, the people and the resources behind it, it didn't have to be like this, so why? I'm seeing also that this was dubbed for Animax in Southeast Asia. I haven't heard it, but I would assume the Animax dub is better because at least the actors, even though those Animax dubs tend to be rougher than a dirt road, are at least trying. Here it just seems like their performances are half-assed. I guess it's because we don't have many of the NYAV or 4Kids staples. They're relegated to, like, the secondary or tertiary cast. Drew Aaron is so low energy when he plays Seiji. I'd like to point out something, too. I, I, I know me, when Media Blaster releases, I always feel like, for the most part, Media Blaster's English dubs are tend to be hit or miss, and sometimes miss. I don't know. Sometimes I always feel like it was this... They didn't. I just feel like they didn't do a good job distributing it, or just the de in general. I just felt like they just didn't put too much effort into it, like you guys were saying. And I just just don't think they really knew how to handle the characters very well. I mean, sometimes you can have actors that may not be the best, but you can still get a good performance out of them. Look at Coastal Studios. Dan and I will always put over the efforts of Coastal Studios because even if the acting in those dubs can be a bit ropey. You can tell that the actors and director had a lot of fun on those dubs. With this dub, though, it just seems like they had no idea just how to approach this series. And I really hate to signal anyone out, but the worst is Midori's voice actress. And it's weird because she's played by a legitimate actress, Kether Donahue. She starred in the FX comedy series You're the Worst, she was in two of the Pitch Perfect movies. She was in several Four Kids dubs. Star of both stage and screen. Like, she's legit. Uh, again, my theory is still just based on the premise was too wacky for these actors. They just came into it with the wrong headspace and didn't really want to make it work. Them, it was just a paycheck. <laughs> That's kind of the vibe I get from this dub. Like, this was recorded out of obligation. 
Which is sad because we know that NYAV is capable of so much more. If you're going to watch this series, you're best off sticking with the Japanese track. For sure. The actors, they do such a great job at giving the characters a lot of nuance, and it's very, very fun to listen to. And speaking of fun, we can now get into serious discussion for this show. And to start things off with, I'm not much of a romantic comedy guy. That's not to say that I don't like them, it's more a case of, I don't watch enough of them. My bread and butter is in things like Magical Girl series, Mecha, Sci-Fi, Action series, and so on. The last thing that I watched before I went into Midori Days was Dina Xenon, because I wanted to watch that series in preparation for Gridman Universe. Awesome show, by the way. Dina Xenon, highly recommended. So going into Midori Days, I knew that I was going to like it, but I didn't know how much I was going to like it. And after I concluded it last night, I can say, yeah, Midori Days is really good. And I think one of the reasons why it works so well is that Midori Days is shockingly wholesome. That really is the kind of surprise behind it all. Because um, I do enjoy romantic comedies, but I um, tend to enjoy them from more of a like shoujo-inclined perspective. I'm always kind of leery when I approach a uh, male protagonist shonen magazine romantic comedy because it's like, all right, I'm not the target audience here, and I'm not a fan of a lot of the norms of this genre. Where are we going to go with it? But in terms of Midori Days, and especially with, I think, the pedigree of the director, like you mentioned, doing stuff like... Super Gals, Victorian Romance, Emma, etc. Like, again, for the silly sex joke premise, this is a story that understands female characters and how teen girls think about romance. It's very respectable in that regard. Like I said, romantic comedies, like for me, it's like, you know, it's hit or miss. And usually I'm kind of like, you know, most of it just kind of, I have to have something original or creative to in order for me to like it. And for this show, it, it's kind of an original show and kind of creative without being overblown and too um, fan servicey. Before, I mean, it's an enjoyable show. It's, it's really good stuff. I feel like a lot of the core of any romantic comedy is a level of wish fulfillment, but I think that a lot of series, and this is true of like any gender of romantic comedy protagonists, tend to go a little bit too far into that, but stuff that is intended for teenage boys tends to be a bit the worst in that regard you often end up with like male romantic comedy protagonists either being such of a blank slate that they're a nothing character because they are intended to be just projected onto by the target audience or you end up with the other extreme of they are way too tall and perfect because it's supposed to be like that power fantasy of the hot guy and all of the girls who love him and such but I think that Seiji strikes a like very, very human balance between those extremes of he's very cool, like he fights good, he's an attractive guy, uh, a lot of girls end up liking him, but he also has enough of those humanizing elements of being a little bit of a loser because the girls who end up liking him and the boy who ends up liking him too uh, – don't like him for silly reasons. The people who are interested in him are interested for reasons that are all genu genuinely, uh, they experienced something that made him realize that he's a good person. And he has had no success up until 
that kind of thing. I don't know. I just, I, I think that he's a very good middle point of a character who is both relatable and aspirational, but also at times, like, we see his loser side <laughs> pitch in as well, especially more frequently towards the beginning. I don't know, it's just an unusual amount of nuance that I don't typically see in this genre and demographic that Midori Days belongs to. You really nailed it when it came to the dynamics and our cast basically being losers just in different ways. The last rom-com that I reviewed on this show was Please Teacher. And that show does not hold up all that well, but not because of its romance, which I think had the potential to be good. The problem is that what should have been a great romance between two people who are out of place is unfortunately weighted down by its extremely boring and uninteresting supporting cast. But with Midori Days, every single character, both main and secondary, has something about them that makes you remember them, something that endears you to them. I was not expecting to be a fan of Shuichi, the figure otaku. I thought to myself, oh god, here comes another otaku character with those weird glasses where you never see his irises and, eh, you know, he's probably just going to be more grating than funny. But by the end of it, you end up liking him. He's just so inherently relatable, I guess. Yeah, honestly, one of the uh, tonal things that the character ensemble reminded me the most of, specifically after reading the manga, where there's a lot more characters that didn't make it into the anime, is I kept on getting these very strong Urusei Yatsura vibes from a lot of the expanded cast. Um, not in the way of them interacting with each other in interesting ways. The secondary characters are mostly all defined by their relationship with Seiji instead of their relationships with each other. But there is a lot of that um, singular quirk that characters are introduced with that gets expanded in very interesting and twisty ways where you don't necessarily expect that to go with their personality. And yeah, um, the otaku character was the one who surprised me the most as well in terms of just like, yeah, this guy's obsession is weird and has strange implications with Midori, but the more you get to know him, it's like, no, this is a guy who is very very passionate about his hobby and they end up treating it in a surprisingly even-handed manner but of course that gets us off track from the two people that i wanted to talk about midori and seiji another thing that i tend not to like in most anime when it comes to couples is wish fulfillment it just feels like it's a lazy way of getting two characters together but I like it when the wish fulfillment trope is either subverted or becomes a be careful what you wish for kind of story. And here, I don't want to say it's a be careful what you wish for sort of story, but it's more both characters' wishes are granted. Seiji wants to date a girl, Midori wants to be close to Seiji. And both get their wish, but not in the way you would expect. And then there's also the factor of the kind of the obvious action of the wish being granted. The weird hand thing is something. Also, the uh, implications of each of their wishes. Like um, Midori's is very literal of when she's on Seiji's hand, she can't be, you know, living her own life. She is 
sleep in her parents' house and everyone she loves is really worried about her because they don't know what happened to her. And with Seiji, I think it's a little bit more metaphorical in terms of his getting a wish uh, granted and like what, what are the negative effects of finding love for Seiji in terms of his. But I think that that's more um, along the lines of he physically is not able to fight or do sports or do as much of those manly things or whatever that he likes when he gets Midori attached to him because, you know, he's famous for his right-hand punch and now his right hand's a cute girl. But I think that you can take that into a more metaphorical level of making compromises to live with someone you love means that you might be able, not be able to uh, do what you want as much. So they really both get these kind of less literal negative side effects as well that fit with their character are. The show is just, again, it's like you guys are saying, I have nothing really to add to it. It's just a really good little show. It's kind of different. And you guys hit the nail on the coffin. The amazing amount of restraint when it comes to its sexual content. Because Midori is forever stuck on Seiji's right hand, you would think that as a viewer, that they could do some pretty naughty stuff with that specifically involving seiji's uh where the sun don't shine but the series has enough respect to not go there and when you think it does it doesn't like there's a scene where seiji and midori are in a bathhouse together and midori offers to wash seiji's back and my immediate thought is oh god they're not gonna go there are they but no, it goes in a completely different direction that's cute, and I like that. I like how in the manga, too, the only time we actually get the, like, surprise reveal character's genitalia or whatever, uh, it's Seiji that gets it. So it's like, yeah, we can use this as comedy, but we're going to do it at the expense of the protagonist instead of the love interest is a little switcheroo of what you would expect from, again, this genre and this premise especially. And speaking of things that are different, even though it's clear that the author wants Seiji and Midori to be together, we gotta talk about Ayase, because she's such a great character in and of herself. I don't want to say that she's a sundae, but, like, she's this, you know, brave tomboy who likes to assert her authority, especially around Seiji, whom she sees as a bully. But deep down, she has a crush on Seiji, just like Midori. And when she's away from the school, she's just this regular, normal, everyday girl. I love her character. When she really changed, she like she was so adorable. Like, and when she like started going out on a date with Seiji, she just like did that complete one eighty. You could tell she really like really adores him. It, it was a really cute like to see her grow as a character, you kind of start liking her, especially after which Seiji saved her from all the, the bully guys at like episode two. She starts to kind of crush her. And I thought the development of that was really sweet. Yeah. And aside from her being just very cute and likable to the extent that, um, obviously again, Midori and Seiji are in game, but you still really want Ayose to be happy. Uh, incredibly funny. Not because of her character, but the bit of the extent to which the world goes wrong for her every single time she's about to confess 
And the uh, extremes that that misfortune goes to is a genuinely incredibly funny recurring bit. I love it when they do it. And it's funny because usually in the few rom-coms that I've seen, it's usually like the main girl or the main guy who, oh, they've got that moment where they can confess their love to the protagonist, but oh, they can't do it. No, it's a secondary character who has that issue. And I love that. Yeah, and it being played for comedy instead of for drama, but still being able to ramp up the tension in their relationship is a really interesting spin on that trope. <laughs> it's like the show is cucking Ayase, and you just can't help but laugh every time she comes close, but ultimately fails in the end. I actually think that the um, bits the show has with I'm blanking on it. Shiori, the uh, young girl who lives in his neighborhood, who he babysits sometimes. That was another place where, when I was initially watching the show, it was, oh no, we are introducing like the Emoto-type character. My pervert senses are tingling. But again, the direction they go with it completely subverts that trope. He is just a kid having an intense child crush, and Saiji is utterly unbothered by this because a real human response i've had babysitters that i always thought were cool specifically the ones that were good at video games since i spent a lot of time with them playing my nintendo 64 so i get where shiori's coming from even though seiji knows that you know hey i'm just a friend of yours okay again it's that level of restraint with how Shiori is handled, because the show understands that it's Seiji and Midori who are the main cast, I think Shiori wouldn't be so innocent if Seiji was such a caring person. Because in the initial episodes, they portray Seiji as this big bad guy, the mad dog he's called, famous for his right hand that beats up a bunch of thugs that threaten his friends. But deep down, he's just this regular guy. He only is a mean streak when he sees others whom are being beaten up or if other people want to test him. That backstory in that one episode with the sister explaining like how she has kind of respect. She picks on his br her brother, but has a respect for him because he, like said, stands up to bullies and people who are getting picked on. I, I really like that in that show. I thought that was very sweet. Yeah, one detail from that backstory that I specifically really love is uh, when the sisters talk about all of these cool fighting techniques she taught him to defend himself, and then eventually he stood up and he was going to fight the bullies back, and Midori's like, oh, so he, uh, so he won his fight, he defeated his bullies, and then the reveal is, oh, hell no, he didn't. He still got beat up. He'd only been training for a week, but he kept going after that. And I think that that little blip of he didn't immediately become this powerhouse of delinquents is also just a very nice moment for the show to put in and acknowledge that's really consistent with his personality. He didn't choose the thug life. The thug life chose him. <laughs> I was going to say one thing, the, one thing about the show I always loved about, I wanted to go back a little bit, is the, uh, that otaku, uh, the otaku guy. The one who has like the girl had a crush on him. She like she's like raging like girl like and yet she he actually doesn't like her at the end. I don't do you remember the episode where he has like he saves a girl like the girl's like a mean like Sundara character and then she like falls in love with the taco guy. 
That said, I want to say that probably my favorite character in the show, at least initially, was Seiji's older sister, Rin. I love characters that are just forces of personality. And Rin, once she comes on, you know, oh god, there's nothing but trouble. She is fantastic. <laughs> like, you'd think that Seiji is going to be the biggest badass, but his sister ends up being a bigger badass than he is. I also just have a weakness for girl gang trope. Anytime there's a girl gang character set in anime or manga, just like, yes, yes, yes. Also, I think that her characterization is a little bit of a fun uh, future Seiji hint, just because, like, she is basically um, what he was in high school, but female. And now she is having this fun adult life where she still connects with her old friends and stuff. And a, at least in the manga, like, very sweet relationship with her own boyfriend. And I'm like, I, I like this. I like the storytelling element of her being used as a kind of window into the future of what we won't get to see. I don't want to say that she's a mirror for Seiji. She's more a glimpse of what Seiji could become. But after meeting Midori, I don't think at the end he wants to become like his sister. But you see, like, why they're siblings. <laughs> it makes so much sense. They are. And because of Seiji and Midori's character, we've talked a lot about Seiji. We haven't talked about too much about Midori. Because we haven't. You'd think that she would be so annoying being a character who's literally attached to Seiji. But she also has so many great and fun moments, as well as some that really make you feel for her. At the end of every episode, we see Midori writing in her diary like in a teenage drama. Or Doug. <laughs> I was going to say Doug. <laughs> yeah, R Midori really is characterized by uh, in a way that would not be surprising to me if I heard that there was a, like, Chojo romantic comedy with this exact same plot where the Midori equivalent was the protagonist. Because in a lot of ways, I think that her emotional arc is even the stronger arc in many ways of like this constant pining and wishing and getting what you want and being so happy, but realizing that this thing that makes you happy isn't something that's real and isn't something that's sustainable. And you can't rely on that wish to give you your happy ending. That wish might encourage you, but you have to go back and actually get there in real life too. It shows you the possibility, but you're the one to make it happen. And that's kind of the moral about this. I also think that that element of her story and characterization is really interesting when you consider the fact that uh, Midori is a super rich girl who lives in a huge mansion with maids and staff and such. So there's that element of naivety and always in, at least in a uh, not emotions, in a very literal way, probably having access to everything she wants and how that's kind of stunted her from being able to emotionally get what she wants because it's not easy it's not something that can be solved with resources it's something she has to actually do and there are several great little episodes that sort of play with her as a human being 
because Midori isn't just some puppet girl or figure. She is an actual human. She still needs to eat. She still needs to bathe. She still needs to drink. I think my favorite episode, though, is the one where Midori catches a cold. It's a really sweet and wholesome episode that really brings out the best of Seiji. Yeah, that was a sweet episode and how she took care of her and really looked out for her because, you know, she did the same thing for him, but it's like now he wants to help her. And it's like, again, you see that side of her. And like I said, Midori's a very unique character. She could have been a one-sided character who just had a major crush on him, but they really, I think for that the series, they do flesh her out that it's not just some rich girl who had a crush on Seiji. She's a very sincere, gives good advice. She's a, she does a lot of, you know, stuff that makes, you know, her a really good person. And it's, you do develop, you know, a really interesting character development with her and, you know, and th- that bond they have between Seiji and her. And even the short amount of time in that show, it's still more developed than many other shows that I've seen that, and that surely that time period. Yeah. And from a perspective of, if we're going to talk about like wish fulfillment on some level, the wish fulfillment of being able to talk to your crush without any of the inhibitions because you're literally attached to them now is I think just a, a very funny, extreme way to go about solving that, oh, I can't be close to them, it's too weird problem. Because it goes into that idea of, well, uh, your agency is being taken away from you in many ways, but it's being taken away from you in a manner that empowers you in other ways because it removes you from the context of these social norms that say what is or isn't appropriate. You're in this situation now, you have strangely more freedom than you thought you did otherwise. We have all of these wish fulfillment reincarnation isekai nowadays, but this is a different sort of reincarnation kind of show, and I wish we would get more like these, especially ones that don't suck. (laughs) Very true, very true. (laughs) Ain't that just the way. Of course, the ending is a bit on the predictable side, but it's also rather endearing. I don't want to spoil it, of course, but I do think it is a satisfactory conclusion. Now, uh, Kat, you read the manga for Midori Days, and I didn't. How similar is the ending? Because the final episode for the anime came out a few weeks before the final chapter of the manga. How different is it? I would say that uh, the endings are extremely similar. But the main difference is the amount of send-off and preamble that you get going into the ending. Like, pretty much every character who has a connection to Seiji gets a whole chapter dedicated to them kind of finishing their arc and their storyline before they go into what the ending is. And there's a couple little differences... Uh, Because, again, there's characters that are manga only, who the finishing of their arcs inspires Midori in some way or another to make the decisions that she does. And so there's just a little bit uh, less motivation in that way going into the anime ending than the manga ending. But the events that transpire themselves functionally the same. Hey, the cat gets gets his happy ending. That cat for that show that... uh weird cat through the whole show like was either crush on the other cat he finally gets the cat at the end which is funnily enough an anime only character that thing's not <laughs> i know oh i love that cat. it's really yeah that cat was awesome i i i just love its 
it is such adorable, especially the ending where he gets gets the girl cat at the end. Oh, it's, it's adorable. Can you not love it? There's a lot to love about Midori Days. And as somebody who doesn't normally watch rom-coms, this is one that I definitely think you should have in your rotation if you're looking for something to watch. If you can find a copy of it, it's you know, it's still pretty cheap to find it in this this day. It's still not hard to find a copy of Midori Days. The DVDs also come with outtakes, although I'll admit I didn't find them very funny. I No, they were not funny. And if, yeah, just, again, just if you watch it, just watch this Japanese, skip the English dub, and just, you're fine. You'll be fine. It's also relatively short at only 13 episodes, so not a huge commitment. And the manga is so episodic that it's basically just like, oh, damn, I wish there was more like interstitial adventures with all of these characters in Midori days. It's like, well, I have great news for you. There's eight volumes of fun, not connected interstitial adventures. How about it? It doesn't overstay its welcome. And that's kind of what I like about this TV show. It doesn't get boring. I mean, I was pretty engrossed for that. All those 13 episodes. It's a, Again, a compelling story. I just sometimes get a lot of those rom-com shows overstay its welcome, especially in that time period where they just play the same joke over and over again. And it gets so annoying. But Midori Days, every episode was kind of, was very unique. I really liked the character development, and they really did a good job at the pacing of it. And again, it doesn't say overstay its welcome. If it went longer, I think it would have been a little boring, but they got it just right. And that's... More can I ask for, especially in that time period and rom-coms in general. Just it just kind of roll your eyes sometimes. You're like, come on, just just get be done with this. Can we just be get end end now, please? I think that a lot no, of the that... reason it's able to shine so well like that is because it completely sidesteps the like will they won't they question that ends up being the arcing thing most romantic comedies rely on because it's pretty clear that it's a will they situation given of their uh, literal attachment but the overarching question is the um are they going to stay like this how are we going to deal with the midori being attached to seiji problem and that is a lot more interesting and unique hook than the standard well they get together kind of filler plot that comes automatically packaged with a show like I, this i i think it reminds me that show kind of reminds me of uh my love story or monokatari i love my that love story. show it's my favorite Oh my gosh, it's that it's kind of reminds me of that because again, it's like they get together. It's not like that. Will they get together or not? They get together at the beginning. It's just how they how they stick together and stay together. It's that premise. Again, I like the characters. It reminds me of that. You know, that's kind of like you said, it's it's good to see at the beginning and then working on staying together or being together for despite fact all the odds, you know, that's yeah. the kind of like the shows I like. And I think that's Sometimes I wish more shows were like that. And again, rom-coms, like those of you in between, do a fantastic job. Yeah, I'd actually, in comparing these two shows specifically right quick, Ore Monogatari and Midori Days, um, I think that the characterization of the main female love interest is very similar. Uh, We have a hyper-feminine female character with mostly like feminine interest whose goal is being a like very domestic stereotypical partner to the guy they're interested in but because they are characterized as such a go-getter because they have such strong will and are a girl willing to make decisions and take action and like 
protect their man in the ways that they are able to. I think it prevents them from being what could so easily be a sexist stereotype of the character and really elevates them into being someone who um, greets all of these feminine aspects as something that is worthy of respect and capable of agency. Well, and again, those two characters, uh, Saijin, uh, Keijo from, is it Keijo from Monica Tri? I forget the name. Is that right? Uh, Goro, Uh, right? Goro, Goro, yeah, Goro. Sorry, Mark Goro. Uh, Goro, they're both kind of similar in a way. Is like they're very people that's are afraid right. of them. They're they're, they're afraid of the Takeo, Takeo, Takeo. Yeah, that's what it's Takeo Kun, as yeah. I call him. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, but Ethan, they're both similar in a way because they both are, you know, people are scared of them because you know they're fighting all the time or they're strong and people kind of don't like get intimidated and they want both want girlfriends really badly, but they don't know how to approach girls and. At the end, it's like they get it's how to develop into this relationship. They, you know, people do they have a crush, they get the crushes, you know, develop a love on them. And of course, throughout the shows, both of them get, you know, crushes from other girls or other people because they find out, oh, they're not just some tough macho man people. They actually are nice and generous, heart dedicated people. Yeah, exactly. And I like, you know, I miss that. Nate, have you ever seen my love story? I have. I need to rewatch it. The comparison that I was going to make regarding our characters getting together and how can they make that last, the obvious comparison I was going to make, as controversial as this show can be, is My Dress Up Darling, another show that you enjoy. Mm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a good That's a good point. That's, a, that's a actually a very good one, actually. I forgot, you know, that's a good point about that, and that's kind of a similar idea. And, both, and again, those are all three really good shows that kind of intertwine with one another. Yeah, way. I'm not personally as big of a fan as My Dress Up Darling, but it is a very good show, and I think that that's a really reasonable comparison to make. And you got the funny thing is both all three shows kind of came out within like ten years of one another, almost. If you think about it, Midori Days was 2004. Well, 2004, My Love Story is 2015, and Dress Up Darling what 2021? They're all within like kind of in that ten, almost ten years apart from one another, almost. Well, depending on what show you look at. It was really funny when I looked up the Midori Days opening on YouTube earlier when I see this, like, 480p video that says it's been <laughs> 17 years ago, and I'm like, oh, no. Was the file like a .avi, .avi file that just uploaded? It just looks so pixelated if you blow it up <laughs> by today's standards. Oh, my gosh. Those, those are the days. Downloading a torrent of the show and, like, on a 480p. Watching anime in 10-minute chunks on YouTube. I don't miss those days. Back when YouTube would actually recommend you things that were related to the video you were watching and not videos that you were already watching or Let's Plays of games recorded by people using a potato microphone that have, like, what, 18 views and were uploaded within the last hour? Trying to watch Full Metal Alchemist Episode 5 Part 3 and unintentionally constantly switching back and forth between the original and Brotherhood because you're 12 and don't know better. (laughs) Oh, Oh, man. Had a wild experience with that series, y'all. That must have been really confusing. That would have been thrown off completely. (laughs) We've said a lot about Midori Days and just so much of it works. You'd think that looking at the artwork and reading the premise that it wouldn't work, but thanks to 
an endearing main character in Seiji, and a great love interest with Midori, and an equally endearing supporting cast, Midori Days is a hidden gem of what was a tremendous year in anime in 2004. Absolutely. And that's, again, what makes a show is the characters. And I think a lot of people think, again, it's anime. If the characters are not interesting, it could be any show. As long as the characters are unique and creative or have a like a personality, the show will work in some way, weird way. If it doesn't, it will. If the shows were not, the characters were not interesting one bit, the show would have been a flop, a disaster. But yeah, to save the character. Kind of- yeah. I was just saying, yeah, any premise can be a good premise. It just needs good people working on it. Characters and personalities, that's all it comes down to. You have to make them unique or likable. If you don't, it's just like, why should I care about these characters? See also Jormungand. (laughs) Do we have any more thoughts on Midori Days before we wrap? Uh, One little thing I would like to bring up that, um, again, more of a thing in the manga and the anime is... A surprising amount of bisexuality for a manga targeted at teenage boys in 2004. Hota's little crush on Seiji, which is mostly like played up for laughs or only hinted at in the anime, is like actually a thing in the manga. There is also a girl who ends up finding out about them who's only in the manga who ends up having a really big crush on Midori. And the way these characters and their affections are treated, like, obviously is treated for comedy, but not for any more or less comedy than uh, Seiji's female love interest. I don't know, I just, it's a small thing, but I, I find that to be another very cool mark of a surprisingly, like, accessible and progressive's not quite the right word, but we will say, like, open and empathetic point in the show's favor. Yeah, just, just a little note I wanted to throw in that we didn't really have another good place for. I'm more of an anime-only kind of guy. Same here. I would say, too, do you think show, do you think a show like this, if you show it to today's anime fans, do you think they might appreciate it, or they might kind of just scoff it off like, whatever? Well, it doesn't have any flashy action scenes or girls who are strong and independent and aren't interested in romance, so I guess they'd probably just brush it off. I wouldn't say it's strong, girl, strong and independent. I think they, they are strong in their own, independent in their own way. Just, again, it's just not what they're used to, I guess, you know. Uh, again, I think it's just a show fighting its premise in terms of being able to reach a wider audience. Correct, um, yeah. Like, I think that anyone who can get past the concept of it in the first episode have a really big appreciation for it today if not a greater appreciation for it because we've kind of slid backwards in a lot of ways of how female characters are you know characterized in shows like this uh when i ran an anime club back in college many years ago i actually showed always showed the first few episodes of midori days and i got a good response everyone really liked the show females males everyone loved it and it's like they weren't offended by it they thought when i told them the premise they thought it was just like the goofiest premise but when they watched it they really loved it and again you just don't judge a book by its cover in a weird way you know just and it's good funny story i gotta tell you this this is a really good story one time uh for halloween we had a halloween party for our anime club one of my members of my club my good friend paul dressed up as shaiji and actually had a cutout version of Midori on his right hand. Aww. 
It was so good. It was funny. It was it was really funny. And if I ever see a cosplay of Midor- someone doing that, I would just want to go up and hug them and you know just say that's awesome because you don't you don't see. Of course, there's no cosplayer for this. If there ever was in today's standards, that would be awesome. But you I know, mean, it's in my power. Who knows? <laughs> you never know. <laughs> but yeah. Go see it. Everyone just go see it. You know, just check it out. It's on, it's on Tubi, right? Is that correct? That is correct. It is on the Internet's great dumping ground that is Tubi. And honestly... Give it a chance. Tubi, yeah, really, seriously. Tubi low-key has a fantastic anime selection. There's a lot of hidden gems that are unfortunately out of print, but hopefully not for long. They got stuff on there like Midori Days, the Daichis... Panda Z, the animation is on there, and uh, yeah, they also got wait, Earth Girl Arjuna. So uh, wait, wait, Daichis are on there? Yeah, the Daichis are on there. Oh my god, I need to watch that. I always wanted to check that show out. I actually thank you for telling me this. Gotten gems. I yeah, really talk about that. Do you think that's like a company might be like Discotech might ever re-release this show? I really hope so. I really, really, really I, hope so. I think it would do a better chance that Discotech could, re- could re-release this. I think it would see another day in another light day just for another audience for today's standards. Discotech, my beloved. Oh, Discotech, my only true only. <laughs> they love us. This, this oh. is our affirmation. Our affirmation to end on is Discotech. Let's speak it into existence. Discotech Midori Day's release. Please. Brady, Brady, Justin, Brady, get on this now. Send it to Brady Hartel. Tell him to get on it. (laughs) If they can re-release Handmade May, they can give us Midori Days. But I think that's going to do it for this episode. Uh, Kat, plug your stuff. Hi, uh, I'm Kat. I have a YouTube channel where I bake fancy cakes and desserts while wearing cute outfits and sometimes cosplays. It's called Kat's Treats with a K. Uh, I'm also working on developing a visual novel inspired by, like, a combination of The Prisoner of Zenda and Rebecca, which means nothing to you if you mostly watch anime. I'm so sorry. But follow me on the website formerly known as Twitter, at Verily Rosen, or for my visual novel, at Tuberia Prince. And you can follow me on social media, at Otaku Nate Show, on Twitter and Facebook. And you can also find me at Nintendo Wii, where I am usually posting photos of myself at sporting events. And it's box lacrosse season starting up this week, so uh, maybe I'll sneak up to upstate New York for a few games. You've got a team in your backyard, Cat. I do. The Georgia Swarm. <laughs> yeah. And I'm Dan. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> no, if you want to hear me talk about metal or any of that stuff you can always follow me on twitter at dps stop at 1985 <laughs> either of that or i'm just posting discotheque stuff or just following all that stuff and but yeah no i i appreciate uh thanks for coming out and actually giving this show a chance and it's really good to see you know work with you guys again nate it's really fun thanks for having me on the show next time on the otaku nate show well it's christmas time and because this is an anime podcast, we are contractually obligated to review the one Christmas anime that every other podcast is forced to review. And that might sound like a bad thing, but honestly, no. Because the one Christmas anime everybody talks about 
is one of the most revered, most acclaimed, and most beloved anime movies from an anime director who unfortunately was gone way too soon. Next time on the Otaku Nate Show, we are going to look at Satoshi Kon's Tokyo Godfathers. And uh, I'm actually in the process of getting a little guest for that episode, hopefully. So until then, this is Otaku Nate. This is Dan the Man, signing out. This is Kat. Nice to meet you. Bye. And we're signing off and saying, Memo to myself. Do the dumb things I gotta do. Touch the puppet head. (laughs) 